What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest, I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Welcome to Smart People Podcast. Okay, okay. Before we get into anything, I have to tell you something. You've been hearing me talk about what's on the horizon for Smart People Podcast for quite some time, and I'm finally here to say it is happening. We're making moves. And as part of that, we have created the Smart People Society. Now, what is that? Well, basically, that's a small group of individuals who will help us shape the future of the show, as well as some of the projects we're working on, including an upcoming ebook. I'm not going to give away too much, but essentially, we've been asking many of our guests a few questions off air, and this ebook will be based around what those questions have told us. So anyways, for the Smart People Society, we're really looking to limit it to around 50 to 100 people. And this is for those of you who really feel like you have connected with this show. You know, I'm not so much concerned about how long you've been listening, but really how much you feel this content, this idea resonates with you. Do you look forward to new episodes? Do they constantly spark new ideas, new thoughts, creative endeavors? And most importantly, do you feel like this show has added a fairly substantial amount of value in some way to your life? If so, head on over to smartpeoplepodcast.com slash society. That's smartpeoplepodcast.com slash society. Now, again, this is going to be a limited crew. We really want to be able to interact with you and we want people who are willing to give us that, that time. But it's not all take. Of course, we've got some goodies for you. And as things roll out, you'll also have VIP access to those. And keep in mind, there's nothing for sale here. We're not, you're not going to a sales page, right? This is just, we want to connect with the people 
that we build this show for. Last thing I will say is if you have already emailed me about this, because many of you have, don't worry, you are included. You are one of the early few. You'll be part of it and you'll get all the goodies. Okay, let's get started. This week on the show, we have an absolutely incredible episode. I feel like our guest this week is my doppelganger in the world where I was much more diligent, hardworking, and successful. We're speaking with Adam Braun, who is a New York Times bestselling author and the CEO and co-founder of Mission U, a debt-free college alternative for the 21st century. You may have heard of Adam. He has been doing some incredible things for a while now because prior to Mission U, he founded and led Pencils of Promise, an award-winning organization that has built 400-plus schools across the world and raised more than $45 million. He's been featured as a speaker at the White House. He was named to Forbes 30 Under 30, Business Insiders 40 Under 40, Wired Magazine's 50 People Who Are Changing the World, and his book, The Promise of a Pencil, debuted at number two on the New York Times bestseller. And we go a lot of places with this interview. We talk about the human drive to always want more and never be satisfied. We talk about what Adam looks for when building a team or when hiring new people. We talk about the future of college and education in general and much more. All right, so enough with the intro. It's time to get Adam's interview up and running. Again, remember, if you're a super fan, head on over to smartpeoplepodcast.com slash society. It is a first come, first serve basis. We have a limited amount of spots for this. No sales pitch at all, I promise. This is just a community connection. Looking forward to it. Here it is, your interview with Adam Braun as we discuss his new company, Mission U, and much more. Enjoy. Well, Adam, you are a busy man, and we appreciate you making the time to be on Smart People Podcast. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. You know, Adam, I, I got to admit something. Do you mind if I ask how old you are? I'm 34. Yeah, that's what I thought. I didn't want to like you. I'm, <laughs> I just didn't, because I'm 34. And you make me okay. feel inferior. Uh, there's plenty of people that make me feel inferior. It's all, it's all just orders of uh, you know, self, self-perception. Trust me. Yeah. Um, there are plenty of 34-year-olds that I look at and say, damn, yeah. how did that person do that? Yeah, actually, that's really interesting because you hear that concept often, right? That mm-hmm. as soon as you have the house you think you want, then you look at the houses that are bigger and better and all that. And that's in For the sure. material world. And we're going to talk about all your accomplishments, but you don't strike me as a material-type guy. But that mm-hmm. doesn't mean that you don't have the same wants or shortcomings as the average person. What does impact you? What does affect you as it relates to your success? Do you have to keep yourself in check on wanting to accomplish more, judging yourself against others? Or have you really kind of figured that out by now? No, I mean, I'm, like most people, you know, I'm always uh, you know, self-evaluating and, and a person in a state of evolution. And so... You know, I, I think what I've tried to do is just really understand um, a handful of things, one of them being just the actual, you know, uh, science behind happiness and meaning and success and fulfillment and all these things that people aspire towards. And, um, you know, one of one of those components uh, that's just undeniable, I, I can't remember the name of the book, but I, I read this book years ago that, that really talked about just the power of relativity and how uh, your your perception of self. Uh, is almost, you know, not entirely, but very, very heavily 
uh, a function of who you consider your peer set and who you compare yourself to. Mm-hmm. And so one of the really poignant examples in, in that book was uh, about the fact that, um, you know, the, the infantrymen, like frontline soldiers, are never particularly resentful or jealous of, of generals. Uh, it's oftentimes like the, the sergeant that's like right above them. You know, it's the person that they can actually see themselves in that position. And they ask, why aren't I there? Um, so, like, I don't spend a lot of time thinking, you know, we're talking about people that are our age. Like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is, is our age. Um, you know, <laughs> Damn I was, it. I was, Thanks. I, Thanks. I, 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 yeah. So, you know, I was, I was class of 06 in, in college. So was he. Um, I remember being essentially a beta tester for Facebook. We were one of the first 10 schools that got access. Wow. And, like, I don't ever lose sleep thinking, like, damn, why didn't I, uh, like, compare to Zuckerberg and what he's done. Like, how come I haven't, you know, built Facebook? But, you know, I think you you have the ability to define who are the people that you want to use as your anchors of accomplishment that, you know, oftentimes you feel like are in your orbit. And what I've just tried to always do is anchor myself around people that are, you know, meaningfully ahead of me um, by a lot of standards, probably like ridiculously ahead of me. But that um, I try and build personal relationships with that, I get to know on a very authentic basis. And what you realize once you start to spend time with people that, you know, in, in some ways are like your heroes is that they're not that different from you. Um, they're people just the same. And, you know, in building those relationships, a big takeaway for me has been like, I could go do that too. Um, and so, you know, when it was building Pencils of Promise, there were certain leaders in the not-for-profit space that had built organizations that were 10, 20, 30 times the size of, of mine when I was just starting. And, you know, those are my anchors, um, but they weren't, you know, the, the, the person who founded like American Cancer right. Society or, you know, the, um, the largest organizations in the world. But it was those who had taken a path similar to the one that I aspire towards. And I think that's always helped keep me both both motivated, um, but also, you know, uh, appreciative uh, of what what you know, has happened in my life and, and all the good things that have resulted from from a lot of hard work. Yeah. One of the things that I completely agree with, and it took me a long time as well to realize is most of the people who have built amazing things, amazing companies or lead these organizations are just normal people. I mean, some I do put on a different level, but most are. And I'm I'm curious, what do you think then in your experience differentiates them from the rest of us who just have the ideas but don't accomplish them? Mm. No, I, I think one thing is um, a willingness to embrace fear and in fact run towards things that scare you. Um, you know, the title of the last chapter, um, in, in my book, the promise of a pencil is a phrase from Ellen Johnson Sirleaf who said, if your dreams don't scare you, they're not big enough. And, um, I I don't think that most people actually buy that. I think most people, uh, aren't willing to pursue a dream that, that fundamentally scares them, uh, because they see a high likelihood of failure. Um, and so I think the difference between those who, you know, might, might, do really good things, and and those who go out and do something absolutely extraordinary is one um, tolerance uh, to move forward in the face of fear. I think the second is just a relentless work ethic. You know, most, most people just are not willing to put in the hours uh, that are required to outwork your competitors to create innovation uh, in an industry that you know hasn't been accomplished before. It, it just you know requires this relentless focus. And I, I saw the same thing in athletics. You know, I, I played basketball all the way um, up through college. And, you know, there was a lot of guys that I knew growing up as a kid playing AU, kind of like all-star basketball that had incredible talent, but just didn't have the work ethic required to make it to the next level. And, and so that's, that's the other piece that I would say is like the willingness to, to, to move through the paralysis of fear 
And then the second part is just an unrelenting work ethic. Um, and when you combine those two things, and there's, there's, you know, luck is a large part of it. You know, macro factors, the industry has to be moving in the right direction. You have to have some breaks that, you know, can fall your way that somebody who, you know, has those first two traits, but just has really crappy timing. Um, it might not work out, but, you know, I find if, if you have those two traits and you just keep on stepping up to the plate, even if your timing's off, you'll, you'll find a way to, to win eventually. Really great insight there. I want to touch on both of them a little bit. This idea of failure holding people back and, and your dreams need to be big enough to scare you. What about the fact that you have these dreams, but knowing how likely it is that you'll fail or you won't accomplish them will put you in a worse off situation. So what I mean is, say you're, you're in a job you don't like and you want to start a company, but you're going to have to put your life savings in or at least $10,000. Mm-hmm. You've got a family to support maybe. I, I don't mm-hmm. know the exact situation, but everybody faces this where they say, look, but then I can spend two, three years building this, fail, be worse off than I am now and three years older. Yeah, I mean, I, I think... I think in any entrepreneurial situation, in any uh, leap of faith that requires a risk, you can always evaluate the downside. Um, I think when you have family that you need to support, that downside is much, much more significant than when you don't, which is why I personally advocate for people taking entrepreneurial leaps when they are young, uh, because you don't have that house with the mortgage and the cars and the kids' school and you know all of these components of life that um, create you know, one, just a higher monthly burn rate, like you just have these institutional kind of costs in your life. Um, but two, you know, the, the, the learnings from failure, which I think a lot of people underestimate, can be reapplied um, in, the, in the next, you know, at bat, whatever that looks like, especially if you're young. And so, you know, if, if I take, uh, you know, Pencil Promise and then, and then Mission U, um, my current focus, uh, into account, I mean, you know, when I started Pencil Promise, I was 24, uh, I was, had a great job working at, at Bain and Company. Uh, I had a, a six-figure salary, not like crazy six figures, but like, you know, right, right about at six figures. And uh, I was getting calls on a weekly basis from headhunters in uh, private equity and hedge funds that were offering a $250,000 a year uh, compensation um, to come and join their companies. And, and that was like very common. That's just what happens when you're in that role. And it's an incredible thing. And, you know, I wanted to instead pursue a path in which, you know, I was going to put $25 in a bank account and try and, you know, build my own nonprofit making <laughs> like, you know, less than a third of what I was supposed to make uh, at um, Bain that year and forego all that money. And I, I think by many accounts, I could have done the same analysis. And, you know, I, I in fact did. I mean, I said, you know, what would happen if five years from now this is successful, this is not successful versus if I took one of these jobs. And, uh, you know, if I if I took one of those, those, you know, finance jobs, you know, I have five years from now, like I'd have a million plus dollars banked. Um, whereas that's not likely the scenario and going to build your own nonprofit. <laughs> but, um, I did think about, you know, 20 years from now, what would my life look like? Um, if both of these things, uh, were different paths and both of them were to lead to success. And what I netted out with was, you know, 20 years from now in the finance route, I'd have a bunch of big houses, I'd have a bunch of cool cars, you know, a boat, and my kids' college education would be paid for, et cetera. You know, if, if I built a great nonprofit and led that for 20 years, you know, I, I would likely have a, a, a solid house. It wouldn't be as crazy. I probably wouldn't have multiple. I'd have a solid car. It probably wouldn't be as crazy. <laughs> but hundreds of schools, literally hundreds of schools around the world would be built as a result of that effort um, and that leap of faith. And when I weighed out just the material possessions, 
like the material impact of those two paths, it was unequivocally easy for me to say I should be taking that latter path. Um, now, you know, again, like we talk about fear, uh, the, the reality is I, I didn't really weigh the downside. I, I think most entrepreneurs have this, or at least entrepreneurs that succeed, um, they have this willingness, um, this ability to kind of blind them si- themselves to what would happen if this fails. Because the person who spends, you know, any like meaningful amount of time uh, as to what would happen if this fails is already lost. Um, I think that you have to go into it saying there is no outcome here except for success. And it will be insanely hard. And there will be many moments where it feels like it's all going to fall apart and it's not worth it and it's going to fail. But I know with absolute conviction that this will succeed. And it's that mentality that keeps you pushing through those really challenging times and enables you to ultimately find success. You mentioned the work ethic as well. Like, have you always known you've had this strong work ethic? And you mentioned the weekends you try to focus on your family. Have you ever looked at the fact that work ethic can be out of balance? Yeah. Look, you know, I think, um, especially now that I have two young kids, I mean, you know, when I was building Pencil Promise, I was living in New York um, and I had no children. And so I could be selfish with my time and say, this is about what I want to work on. Now that I have children, I don't want to be away from them at all if I don't have to. I realize that I do need to, to be away from them a significant amount of time uh, so that I can have the impact that I want to have and ultimately provide the life for them that I would like them to lead. Uh, but I understand that the game changes entirely uh, once you have children. And you know what, what I would say is like, and this is not an original idea of mine. I've heard others, others share this, um, one friend in particular. Uh, but, you know, I don't think there is a, an achievable sense of balance when you're weighing out such critical priorities. And instead, I think what you have to seek is harmony. And, you know, in harmony, that's where you know, all, all these notes are playing, you know, a meaningful part of your life. And at certain moments, one ramps up and at certain moments, you know, it ramps down and, and others take uh, center stage. And so I think for each person, they need to figure out what that cadence looks like. I mean, I can tell you um, probably the most powerful thing that I've done in my career, and I, I've kind of gone in and out of this practice over the years, is that on Friday nights uh, at sundown, and this is a Jewish tradition known as Shomer Shabbos, where you don't work from sundown to sundown, Friday night to Saturday night. Uh, oftentimes, like, you know, the, the, the strict interpretation is you don't use any power, you don't conduct business, like, it's very, very strict. Um, but I looked at that and I said, you know, the, the real uh, reason for this tradition is so that you can have a day of rest, so that you can focus on being with loved ones, uh, so that you have time to think bigger thoughts, uh, to, you know, really um, be, be true to yourself and surround yourself with uh, those that you care about most deeply. And the way that I can achieve that is, is not by like not getting in a car. It's, it's simply just by turning off my access uh, to social media, uh, to email, as well as to Slack. Um, you know, like email and Slack in particular. And um, I'll say collectively, I, I haven't been as consistent with it, but there was a period where for probably two years I implemented that practice. And now, you know, on a consistent basis, uh, I'll use it and I'll hopefully be implementing it like on a more regular basis going forward. But that is critical for me um, to be able to have that quality time with my kids and also, you know, to have a little bit of space to not be so heads down in your business every day and be able to, to kind of digest bigger thoughts have a bit more perspective. I think it's really important. Absolutely. Well, and we'll give a, a bio about all the things you've accomplished. It's really quite incredible from the, you know, 30 under 30 and obviously pencils of promise and mission you, which I, I really do want to dig into mission you a little bit. But yep. what I, I really want to go back to is 
you know, if you went to work at Bain, I would imagine, you know, you wanted to get this good job, high paying, tough, work with challenging problems, work with smart people, right? And to then transition into Pencils of Promise seems like you had to have some realization, some realization that money or this business world, this for-profit path isn't for me, and really I'm more mission-driven. Did you have that, or was it always something you'd envisioned? You know, it's, it's, it's kind of tough because I, I think, um, you know, at different stages in my life, I've, I've had different perspectives. Um, you know, when I was a teenager, I really wanted to pursue uh, making as much money as possible. I was obsessed with Wall Street. And, uh, you know, I figured uh, happiness was, was found in making a bunch of money. And then when I was 21, I went into the developing world for the first time as a backpacker. You know, I, I would uh, pursue these entrepreneurial, uh, you know, little businesses, take the money that I made and get a one-way ticket and backpack uh, for multiple months in, in various countries throughout the developing world. And, you know, at that point, everything changed. And I thought, oh, my gosh, like, you know, all happiness is actually found in, in service to others. And these folks have so little and my life has been so, so blessed by, you know, just by virtue of being on American soil and, you know, having a, a loving family, going to a great public school system, uh, I should be giving back. And that's where I'm going to find joy. And, you know, after our, a lot of those travels, I, I moved into New York and I was working at Bain and I realized, you know, even though I was on a path to, to making money, um, I, I wanted to have an experience that I knew every single day. Uh, you know, I'm devoting most of my waking hours to my work. Uh, I want that that time to be spent knowing that I'm making the world better, and and not just in a small way, but in a really substantive one. And that's been my my north star. It's it's not hey, I don't want to make money. Like I have no in- desire to be impoverished as a result of helping others live a better life um, and get out of poverty in in a lot of the work that I've done. But if that's a byproduct that you know there's a cap on the amount of capital that I can make, I'm I'm willing to make that trade off. Um, but that's not like the impetus. It's it's why I've spoken a lot about the fact that I actually hate the phrase nonprofit. Um, I don't think anyone wakes up and is like, I don't even want to not profit today. Um, and that's not the the actual motivation behind any organization. The motivation is to serve others, create meaning, to drive greater purpose in people's lives. And so I think the whole space should just be known as, as for purpose. And I think what we're seeing now is the evolution of for-profit companies that are incredibly mission-driven. And that was the origin of, of Mission U, how you know I spend... The majority of my time now is is uh, was B Corp from day one. Uh, it was incorporated as a public benefit corporation, mm-hmm. which allows us to raise money from traditional investors um, and not be thinking about like fundraising year round. It's just, you know, a, a you know, large amount of capital comes in at once and then you go out and use that, that capital to execute. And if you do a good job, you know, you can raise more and, you know, venture back and all that stuff. But um, as a B Corp, you can really serve your social mission as well. Um, and oftentimes you can make decisions that are in the best interests of your social mission, even if it means uh, reduction of financial gain. And so that's where I, I'm motivated is at the intersection uh, where, you know, I can certainly support my family, my loved ones. I, I enjoy being a meaningful donor uh, to great organizations that I believe in. And if you're not in a position where you're making capital, that's pretty hard. Um, but the the core driver for me in all of this is... Uh, that I want to make the world a better place. And I want my work to reflect that. You know, Adam, it's, it's really incredible talking to you. And, and, you know, I've, I've heard interviews, uh, of you and I've, you know, seen videos. I've kind of known about you for a while, but hadn't dug in obviously at this great a detail. Cause I hadn't talked to you, but I'm just saying this for the listeners out there because they kind of know my story and, and you don't 
and we, it's not about me, but you know, I was a finance graduate. I, all I wanted to do was work on wall street, make millions of dollars. Um, I went into finance, commercial real estate. I made six figures by 24. Um, and then instead of my kind of realization being going to a third world country, I started having really bad anxiety and panic attacks because mm. I realized this wasn't at all what I wanted to do and it didn't motivate me. I'm, I'm not money motivated. And so I took some time off and eventually co-founded a nonprofit in the mm. healthy food space, um, mm. which is still thriving. It's, it's now out in um, San Francisco and making it a difference. But mm. the reason I say this is because although I've since kind of iterated from that and am now uh, teaching and, and speaking and doing um, workshops at organizations, I'm definitely the happiest now that I've been as a professional. And the reason, so the reason I go through that story is just because, look, you clearly uh, have much more intelligence than I do, (laughs) much greater work ethic, have made a much bigger impact. But in our own worlds, right, we've, we've taken this from the finance office six figure thing to how we deem success. And I just put that out there because we get so many emails from people like I'm in this job. I don't know what to do. I've got to support this. And I just feel like, look, two two stories right here that ended up working out at not a too late of an age. Yeah. It's just really refreshing to talk to you about this. Yeah, likewise, likewise. And and I, I didn't know the extent of your full background, but you know, it's really extraordinary what what you've been able to accomplish as well. Yeah, I appreciate that. It's just so great. And so obviously, I aspire to be more like you. That's why I have you on the show. So uh-huh. I I want to ask you this. You know, a lot of people have big ideas. And in fact, we're going to talk about Mission U, but I had a very similar idea about five years ago, which I still think is a pretty good idea, which is the same way we invest in companies, we should be able to invest in people. So say I know a smart kid who's 16, right? Or a great athlete who's 16. I say, all right, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you 200 grand now. I'm going to buy three shares of you, right? Mm -hmm. And I get your, you know, 10% of your income until you're 40, something like that. Yeah. I haven't really thought through mine, but I think it's a good idea. My point is... There's actually a business that was started for this exactly called Upstart. Are you kidding me? Did it fail? Uh, they pivoted into uh, more of like a direct loan business, and now they're worth a couple hundred million dollars. So it's a good starting place, but um, <laughs> there, there, there is reason um, that it, it's a very challenging business, but I, I won't go through all that. But it's, well, it's a good core idea. Well, if it's, that's where I failed, though. See, the, the, the problem I have is I'll think through it, and then I will go to the, oh, my gosh, but then what do I got to collect their, yeah. their tax records, and then I got to yeah, sue yeah. them, and then I own them, and blah, 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 and then I just don't do it. For you, Pencils of Promise or Mission You, you had the idea, and you made it happen. You didn't just make it happen. You made it awesome, both of them. And, and so what is it that allows you to take these seemingly impossible things and make them possible. And why do you have that kind of belief in yourself? Probably better ask my my colleagues and coworkers <laughs> and my family members than me uh, as to what it is. But you know, I, I mean, I, w- I would say a couple things. So first and foremost, I mean, Pencil of Promise, I, I can confidently say, has been a success. You know, by the end of this year, we should break ground on our 500th school around the world. You know, we've been around for 10 years, raised more than 50 million dollars. So. Um, I, I feel good about that. Mission U, obviously, still still in its early days, and and I think we've, you know, done an amazing job of gaining early traction. You know, full profiles on, you know, the Today Show, Time Magazine, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, thousands and thousands of people applying to the program, um, but there's still a lot of work ahead, and and I fully recognize that. You know, we've only been around for about you know two years. Sure. Um, I, I think the core tenets of, of my approach, and you know, yourself and and our listeners can 
you know, maybe uh, attribute these to, to some of the things that have happened or not. Um, but I think the first thing is uh, that I do a lot of the really hard introspective work um, that doesn't happen overnight. It usually takes years um, to get to a moment where I feel like I've had some type of recognition or breakthrough um, in an idea that somebody else has not pursued in the same exact way and um, enables me to have just a level of relentless conviction that an idea can work um, that, that others don't often have. And so um, that, that's kind of step one. It's like, I think a lot of people are just like, I'm going to do a brainstorming exercise and then I'm going to have an idea and I'm going to go build that <laughs> business. But, you know, like I've, I've had a, a, a journal for since I was 16, so 18 years that I've been writing in journals and I have like dozens filled. Um, and that's very important part of my process, um, to like get out my honesty, get out my truth. And I'm, I'm constantly like kind of pressure testing and checking ideas against people. Um, and so I think the first part is like, I'm, I'm willing to be patient so that I can accelerate really, really quickly when I am, have conviction in an idea because you know, Mm. the, the, you don't get that many at bats if, if you're always like constantly kind of changing. Um, I think the second piece is that, um, I really, really, really enjoy, um, helping others succeed. And, um, I think that manifests in a number of ways, right? Uh, part of it is like the direct service of, you know, working with students in Pencil Promise and in Mission U. Um, but I think the, the other really powerful way is, uh, in building teams that give people a huge amount of autonomy. Um, like I'm the opposite of micromanager, you know, I, I align with people on a direction, um, and, you know, let them know that however I can or, uh, I'm able to best support them, uh, they can receive from me, but like, I'm not going to be constantly checking in on you throughout the day being like, how's it going? Did you do this? Well, did you do not? Like, I, I think I'm a pretty good judge of talent. Um, and I'm certainly made my mistakes on this front, but you know, my, my interviewing style is, is pretty unique. And you know, once I get to a conviction with somebody, you know, I put them in a position to really, um, succeed and grow. Mm. And so I think that's the second piece is a lot of people that are extremely talented um, don't have the willingness to like loosen the reins and actually give them to somebody else entirely for, um, you know, a specific task or function. And part of my training at Bain was in building organizational infrastructure and, uh, helping to create, you know, culture that allows each person to really fulfill their true sense of purpose and talent and ability and ultimately superpowers. And so, um, I think that, that, that that's like the two pieces is when I believe in something like my conviction in it is relentless. And I think people now know that like if Adam really, really deeply believes that something can happen, he, he's going to find a way right. um, to, to, to get a great outcome here. It might not be the outcome that he started with day one or that we expected, but like something good is going to happen. And this guy's not going to stop, you know, trying until like there's either, you know, a safe landing or like, you know, a really, really, you know, big, big outcome here. Um, like just pure failure is, is, is not an option for this guy. Um, and then the second is, um, you know, being able to both find and recruit and then really empower great teams. I'm really curious now, and you don't have to give away all your insight on it, but what makes a good interviewee? Like, what are you looking for? Well, my, my interviews are usually a lot more about fit than function. I, I tend to let my teams focus on function. Like, is this person capable in the certain area that we need them to be capable in? Um, others have, have probably, you know, more direct styles of, of getting to that. Um, I do always uh, ask people to do a take home assignment that is usually reflective of what their job's actually going to be. And so I'll, I'll say like, please spend somewhere between three and five hours on this. Return it to me within five days. And like, here's the task that I'm going to ask you to put together. And it's like the exact job 
or ah. a project within their exact job so I can see how they think their problems, how they process that information and, and what their output would look like. That, that helps me a lot. But in the actual interview, um, honestly, what, what I'm really looking for is uh, a number of character traits. The, the first is integrity. Uh, the second is, is ambition. Uh, the third is uh, confidence. Um, like, do you believe that you're good at your job? Mm. Um, because I, I want you to believe that you're good. But, you know, the fourth is, is kind of a counter to that, which is, you know, humility. And, the, and then the fifth is like, is this someone that I like yeah. and, and want to be around? Because like, I want a culture of people that like being around each other. And obviously, if I'm, you know, employee one, like, I got to start with people that I want to be around. Right. So um, I, I will share one thing um, that I think hopefully your listeners will find of value, which is a question that I asked every person I interview, um, that usually is, is pretty disarming for somebody. Um, but I'm gonna ask it to you actually right now. All right. Oh God, man, I'm on the spot. Okay, let's do it. Yeah. So I, I usually wait to the end of an interview. It's like the second to last question that I'll ask. But my, my question for you is, uh, what do you consider to be, uh, your single greatest success that is unrelated to your career or your family? Here's what I would say in all honesty, I would say that my willingness to accept that I'm not motivated by a lot of societal standards. Took a lot of time, a lot of struggling, a lot of hard work. Because when from 15 to 25, you think your only goal is to make a million dollars, and all of a sudden, you are kind of forced to to address that and and take the not safe route, the route that doesn't pay money, and look at what you had imagined your future to be isn't really what you want, and then be willing to make a life change to do it. Uh, which I did. I'm proud of that because I think from everything I've learned, people look back and ask, what have they accomplished in terms of good in the world? And and I think I'll be able to do that only because I made that change. So that's that, that would be my answer. That's great. I mean, so, so the reason that I like that question is it tells me a lot about the person and who they are, huh. not what they do. Um, you know, like, like I know something about your character as yeah. a result of how you answer that question question. And it's not something that is going to surface when I ask you about your strengths or your weaknesses or a time that you, you know, went through a challenging situation. Like all of those are, you know, to some degree, a little bit canned for most people. They know those answers, mm -hmm. but, um, it's, it's not about the, the function. It's really about the fit. And, you know, I asked, uh, uh, someone that we were looking at a marketing hire, uh, who I knew like functionally could do the job. I knew she was like a good person, but, um, you know, when I asked her that question, her, her response was that, uh, she organizes monthly uh, volunteering cleanups um, that uh, happen in the Marin Headlands outside of San Francisco, where our office is based. And every single month, she's been doing it for years. Mm. And it's something that, you know, she's actually brought it friends into, colleagues, but, you know, she, she really loves it. And like that never would have come up in a standard interview. Yep. But as soon as I heard that, I was like, I want this person in our office. Yeah. I want somebody who's doing that yeah. uh, in their spare time, bringing that type of um, just commitment to, to the well-being of, of the world. Um, and takes action on it and can organize, like I learned so much about that person in that, in that question. So that's, that's hopefully reflective of my interview. It's an, that's an awesome question because, and I'm sure listeners are going through it in their head, but the first place you go is regardless if you try to get away from career, you go to either career or family and, and, and yeah. to, to yeah, separate those family. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah. everyone is career. And, right. and I asked this question to a number of people, what do you consider your greatest comfort outside of your career? And it's always like, you know, my relationship with my kids, uh -huh. I'm a good you know, mother, father, I took care of my mom when she was ill. And like, those are all nice to knows. Uh -huh. But I'm just kind of assuming that most people that are at least making it to like a final round interview, yeah. 
would be a good family member, right? Um, <laughs> right. So, so when you take that out, um, it forces you to like really think about either who you are or do you have a third dimension to your life outside of work and family? And, and I want to know that about you. Right. Wow. That's great. Well, thanks for sharing that, Adam. Let's, let's do this. I want to dig deeper into Mission U now. Sure. Tell us about it. Give us the, the broad brush. And then I've got some targeted questions for you. Sure. Um, so, you know, Mission U was, was really born out of um, my experience seeing what happened to my wife. Uh, she grew up in a very loving family but without a lot of financial means and, you know, really uh, was kind of sold on the idea that college was the, the path to uh, success and prosperity, um, as we tell, you know, tens of millions of young people every single year. And uh, she ended up going to college both in-state and out-of-state, public school and private school, trying to reduce the cost along the way, and still got absolutely crushed with student debt um, on high interest rates. And by the time that I met her, she's, I think, 24, she had $110,000 of student debt. Um, and it was just absolutely debilitating. And she didn't really acquire any of the uh, applicable career skills that were going to be relevant for the type of jobs that she was interested in. And so it was just this huge mistake. And, uh, you know, the more that, that we spoke about it and the more that I learned that, that um, student debt was the only debt in the country that couldn't be discharged through bankruptcy, which is crazy, um, the more I wanted to, to really you know, create an offering uh, that could best serve um, students and their families within the higher education landscape. And so uh, Mission U currently is, is a uh, higher education program uh, that um, you apply for uh, when you get in. Uh, you don't pay us upfront. Um, and uh, instead, we really invest in you uh, across um, the course of your participation in our program. And what you commit to uh, is a contribution back to us um, only if and when you are making above a certain threshold of income. So only if you essentially land you know, a solid job. Um, and you know, it's, it's a, a mix of soft skills, hard skills, and technical skills across your participation. We partner with today's leading companies like Uber and Lyft and Spotify and Warby Parker and more to help design the curriculum. Uh, you know, have guest speakers from top tier companies, uh, essentially on a, on a weekly or biweekly basis. Our students visit some of the best companies in the world. They were at Airbnb uh, a few weeks ago. They were at Square. They were at, you know, Spotify. They've been to a, a lot of incredible places. Um, so you get exposure to these not only company cultures, but also the personnel. Um, and our partners get early access um, to our graduates. Um, so they're getting this great pipeline of just, you know, not only talented, but also incredibly diverse uh, talent, which we know is, is, uh, really, really critical today. One thing that strikes me is you said that these companies help build the curriculum. What do you say to the person that says, well, then you're just really creating a, a factory of people who are only learning what's necessary for a few specific jobs? I mean, one, I would say that, uh, a lot of our students come in with an interest in a specific field and our, our goal is to equip them for those types of jobs. Mm. I mean, you know, uh, our, our major right now is in data analytics and business intelligence. Um, you know, data analytics is a skill set that is applicable within marketing, finance, operations, data science, uh, strategy, um, yada, yada, yada. And so what we look for is, is uh, really applicable skills on the hard skill side. And then the, the soft skill side is about self-development, holistic knowledge, you know, in particular, uh, effective collaboration with others, teamwork, communication, delivering and receiving critical feedback in a professional context. So we cover a pretty wide swath. Uh, in fact, you know, um, a lot of the kind of core tenets of a liberal arts education are about critical thinking and reasoning. And, and I would say that any student that goes through our program is actually really, really uh, significantly um, you know, taught uh, around those types of concepts and put into various situations 
that are not just about hard technical skills, but we have an entire curriculum around these soft skills and, and holistic self-development. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, I think it's important if someone's going to pay for an educational program that, um, you know, they should know what they want their outcome to be. Um, you know, and if your outcome is I want to have a coming of age experience and I just want to grow, um, then, I mean, if your family can pay for that, then more power to you. But I don't think you should take on crushing levels of debt, um, in order to do that. Um, if, if you can, you know, uh, provide, uh, a, a, a reasonable alternative from an economic standpoint that leads to real financial security. Um, and so again, like we're looking for what we define as career starters. Um, some people are more of the upskilling individual, but you know, most of our students are incredibly motivated from a career perspective. And you know, that's, that's who we're looking to serve. I can imagine. And, and I'm sure many see this as an opportunity that they didn't think they would have be, due to the financial implications. And with that in mind, you're going to get the more dedicated student, the more curious person, et cetera. Yeah, for sure. I'm assuming you went to college, right? Yep. Do you feel that college benefited you in any way? Oh, definitely. Absolutely. How, um, how so do you think? And do you think people will miss out on any of that? Um, so, so I'll tell you how it benefited me. First of all, I went to Brown University. So okay. um, you know, I, I, I was fortunate to be able to attend what I would say is one of you know, the, the top colleges really in the world. And so um, the first thing that was really beneficial for me was uh, building a network of folks who challenged my ideas and became lifelong friends. And um, I think if you spoke to any student at Mission U, they would fundamentally say that that is what they have experienced in their cohort um, with us. So, so I think they're still getting that experience. For me, there was also a, a kind of coming of age component, which I don't think was uh, as much about um, being in a college structure. The vast majority of the world between the ages of like 18 and 23 comes of age and they're not on like a leafy green campus. Right. Um, so I think it's purely like a function of just being at that age and having X many years. Um, to mature and grow and, and evolve, um, I, I would not be able to point to like really much at all that I learned in a classroom that was particularly beneficial in the way that I could look at trainings that I went through in my time at Bain that was incredibly beneficial. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think about why I had such a good experience. I also played on the basketball team and, and that was obviously like a, a, a great um, component to, to my experience. But, um, you know, I, I look at the core parts and, and we tried to say at Mission U, what can we deliver on at a shorter period of time? But uh, the reality is I went to college, I entered as a freshman about 15 years ago. Um, and the financial dynamics of attending college 15 years ago looked very different from how they look today. And so that was one piece. The second is, you know, I had parents who grew up in poverty, worked themselves out of that poverty as a dentist and an orthodontist, and uh, were able to save up enough um, on the dynamics when you know, you and I were college age, uh, to enable me to go to school for four years and graduate without debt. And that was uh, a gift that now as an adult, I value in ways that I, I never did at that age, but it, it was such an extraordinary gift that they, you know, provided, uh, through their hard work. And the reality is the vast majority of people in this country don't have that experience. Um, you know, today's freshmen on average entering college, by the time that they graduate, the projection is that they will have $50,000 of debt as a graduate. Um, and you know, you look at the average payback and the interest rates, it means they'll actually pay back close to a hundred thousand uh, dollars for that experience. And seven in 10 college students, uh, are borrowers. And so the dynamics have just changed really drastically. And what we set out at mission U to accomplish is, you know, uh, an offering. Um, and right now, obviously, you know, it's, it's, a, you know, more seen as a college alternative. And over time, 
my hope is that we find a way to really effectively and closely partner with the existing colleges because I think the, the higher education landscape uh, is an extraordinary thing. Uh, it benefits a tremendous amount of people, but there's a lot of folks that we're not serving very well. Mm -hmm. And to the extent that we can help those individuals, um, you know, we're, we're really excited to do so. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you're taking or you looked at the best parts of formal college education today and tried to keep those and then add on to it efficiencies, the financial aspect and the, the job viability at the end to really just create college 2.0, if you will. Was that a, yeah. was that a, an approach you took at looking at what's going right, what's going wrong? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we did a, a whole bunch of analysis, spoke to both employers, folks in the college landscape, entrepreneurs, you know, families, mothers, fathers, students, and uh, really tried to understand you know, who we could best serve and, and uh, put together a program that would enable them to build the lives and careers that they wanted. It's, it was crazy when you were talking about, you know, how the financial things have changed. And mine was the same. My parents paid for me. And I, I just I got goosebumps when you mentioned, you know, at the time I didn't realize how I mean, mm. I was thankful, but I didn't realize how much of a sacrifice that was. And you mm. just now I'm a parent as well. And I realized the, the sacrifice, the lifetime sacrifice to be able to put one, two, however many kids through college. It, it is quite incredible. And what's also interesting is people have asked me, I have a three-year-old and said, well, have you started your college fund? And I said, no. And they said, why? And I said, because there's no way in 15 years college is mm. going to be what it is today. And now, look, am I going to say money for him? Sure. But I, I don't believe it needs to be dedicated to this college fund because I believe that brilliant entrepreneurs like yourself are working to change this ridiculous dynamic. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm in the same boat as you. I haven't set up uh, like whatever it is, 529 plans <laughs> yeah, for my exactly. kids. Cause I, I, I mean, first of all, if I, you know, did put away money for them, um, I would much rather offer them that capital and say, look, you make the decision. Yep. Um, you know, by then college is going to be like about north of a hundred grand a year. And so I'd much rather say, look, you know, I would, I would like you to put together a plan to explain to me how you would like to spend $400,000 over the next four years. <laughs> and if I'm a kid, I'm, I'm not, you know, sitting on a campus, no. I'm probably, you know, traveling for a period of time. Maybe I'm spending six months in a, an immersive educational experience. Maybe I'm trying to start a business or, you know, um, participate in an organization that I believe in. But I think just given the cost dynamics, uh, there is a, a better pathway um, in the year 2035, um, unless the financial dynamics change. And, and I'm hopeful that they do, because if they don't, um, a large part of this you know, com uh, country is going to be incredibly disenfranchised as a result. Absolutely. And so just to get this clear, so how long is the program, the Mission U program? Uh, so our flagship offering is one year, but okay. um, you know, I would anticipate that going forward, there'll be a variety of options. Yep. And so it's $0 and they come in and they get this great education. They're also linked to these companies they get first dibs. What else? Have, have I missed anything? I mean, I think it's incredible. Yeah. So I just want people to be crystal clear on what it is you're doing. Yeah. I mean, again, like, you know, one of the things that, that we're already seeing is there's just way more demand uh, for the program than we can possibly address. And so we're looking at how do we enable it to be uh, a bit more accessible and flexible um, so that we can serve more people more rapidly. Uh, than we can currently take on, given how many people are applying. Mm. And so, you know, this this flagship is kind of, you know, the the starting place, uh, this one year program. But I think over time, what you can anticipate is a lot more optionality uh, within the Mission U offerings. And so, you know, likely looking at offering various different times um, that people can, you know, length of time to participate, 
as well as uh, different payback structures. I mean, you know, we started with this income share agreement, uh, which we deeply believe in. But, you know, we have some folks that don't want to do that. They, they'd rather just pay a set amount uh-huh. um, or, or they'd rather pay it up front or they'd rather do a hybrid where some of it is up front and some of it is, is baked into the back end. So I think what, what you're going to see uh, if you just go to M-I-S-S-I-O-N-U.com, uh, not Y-O-U, just letter U, mm. um, is uh, depending on when you listen to this, uh, we're working really hard to, to make sure that we're putting out uh, offerings that enable us to reach as many people as rapidly as we can while uh, ensuring you know incredible quality. Well, I got to say, as a father of one and soon to be two, probably in the next couple of days, we're expecting our second. I, I Thank you. I hope you succeed because hopefully you'll be saving me a boatload of money. <laughs> uh, that's the plan. <laughs> well, look, Adam, man, I aspire to be more like you. I appreciate your time. I appreciate time, all that you've accomplished. Mission U, the letter U, is the organization. Where else can people find you, read more about you, understand what you're doing and support you? Sure. Um, my, my website is just adambraun.com, A-D-A-M-B-R-A-U-N.com, uh, where I post blogs, talks, et cetera. Um, you know, some free uh, giveaways there too. And then uh, on Instagram, I'm ITS Adam Braun. So it's Adam Braun. Uh, on Twitter, just at Adam Braun. And uh, my book um, is probably the best way that you can really learn a lot more. Uh, you know, when it came out, it went to number two on the New York Times bestseller list. And so it's, it's had this huge following and uh, it seems to have really transformed a lot of people's perspectives um, and directions that they want to take their life. And the book is called The Promise of a Pencil, and it's on Amazon or pretty much any retailer nationwide. The Promise of a Pencil. That's right. That's where I heard you from. I think I saw you on Marie Forleo. You've been everywhere. Yeah. I mean, fortunately, people have been kind and said, you know, here's a here's a forum to tell your story. And and the organizations are pencilsofpromise.org and missionu, M-I-S-S-I-O-N-U.com. Fantastic. Well, I know you got a meeting to hop into. Appreciate it again, Adam. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Have a great day. All right. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Adam Braun. Adam is the founder of Mission U and the author of The Promise of a Pencil, How an Ordinary Person Can Create Extraordinary Change. And as always, you can find his book on Amazon or at your local bookstore. And if you decide to purchase it through Amazon, please make sure to use the Smart People Podcast Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. If you're looking for other free and easy ways to support the show, please head over to iTunes or Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and review for Smart People Podcast over there. It greatly helps support the show. If you'd ever like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. And as Chris mentioned at the top of the episode, we are now releasing Smart People Society. So head over to www.smartpeoplepodcast.com slash society for more information. All right, that's it for us this week. We've got a lot of great episodes coming up, so make sure you stay tuned and we will see you all next episode.